Thanks for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. We pray that this message is both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith in Jesus. We are happy to provide this resource to you, but as you know, this alone cannot meet the need we all have for fellowship and corporate worship. So we hope you'll be able to join us this Sunday at 10 a.m. Or if you're not in the area, give us a call and we'll do our best to help you find a good church to visit. For now, here is this week's message. So this past week, I've had a couple of now I get it moments. First, I got so tired of hearing about Bucky's gas station. I got so tired of everybody talking about it and who brags about gas station food. I was like, I do not understand why people are talking so much about this food. And last week we're at the Warrior Weekend and Lee Cannon, he's not here, so I'm just gonna say, he said it was the best food he ever had. The brisket was better than his mama's cook. And I was like, Lee, you shouldn't say stuff like that, okay? Like, he didn't really say that, but that's okay. He's not here, I can make things up. But people were just talking about this brisket. So I said, you know what, on the way home, we're going to stop and we're going to see what it's all about. And so I just went for it. Here's a picture for you. Yep, me and Bucky, we just went for it. I said, I'm going to go for it. So me and the brisket, we just had a good time. It was pretty good. I finished it before I left the store. I was like, it's not so bad. But afterwards, I said, okay, now I get it. The gas station's as big as Walmart. Like, why didn't they say that? It's huge. And then secondly, I'm trying to get fully ingrained in South Carolina culture, right? Trying to learn what it looks like to live here. So we finally got to experience a Clemson football game. All right, here's a picture. Pretty fun, right? I was yesterday. Good time. And I learned several things. Number one, I learned you can go to a football game and still come to church. Yes, I've learned that's possible. Just saying, we're going to start having conversations now. But I started thinking, who would drive four and a half hours away to a football game? I mean, goodness gracious, don't you have something better to do than to go to a football game? Well, after going, I can say, it's a pretty good time. Like, it's a pretty good time. I get it. And before I hear any fussing about us decked out in Clemson stuff, okay? Because that's our team now. Jessica started talking about it in we all the way home. Talking about we as a team. So like it's done. We're Clemson fans now. Look. But here's what happens. You're like, Brian, how did this happen? Well, what you do is you get my family tickets and you get us parking right next to the stadium. We are then fans from then on. It was like, it's not that complicated, right? That's what you got to do to get people into it. And the Sandsbury's took us with this full VIP treatment. It was a great time. Now, on a side note at this game, I'm not going to lie, it took me about three times to figure out I kind of felt bad for the school because I thought they forgot how to spell Clemson. You know the chant and the end comes later? I was like, guys, it's right there on the field. Like, what are you doing? Like, how do you not know after, oh, there's an end? I had no idea that you paused and you waved your hand. like So I was learning. But for those of you who haven't been, you just got to go. See, I, I know now, right? But it took me a while to understand what would happen. All our kids this morning were doing the chant, so it's kind of just taking its course. But we had a really good time. Other than one of the deacons texted me in the middle of the game saying, you're bad luck. <laughs> right, Eric? In the middle of the game, I was like, I'm enjoying this team. And you're, okay, but anyways, here's my point. We had the, now I get it, moment. 
It was a great time. And the same way, I need you to lean in and listen this morning to what we're gonna talk about because we've been talking about some very sensitive things over the past couple of weeks. And I hope today, after this sermon, you can have a, now I get it, type of moment. Because we've learned all the things that Christian, hey, you could take this picture off back here now. You can just like change it to something else. But uh, for the past couple of weeks, we've learned all about what not to do as Christians. Paul goes over and over and slams sexual immorality and talks about how Christians just need to run from it. Does that mean then that Christians are prude? Right, if you would check the landscapes on Christians and the teachings on the topics, it would seem that Christians are just prude people. But what we're gonna see today is that Christians aren't prude. We're just called not to be perverse. We're to be pure, not perverse people. You see, the backdrop of um, Paul's understanding of sex is found all throughout the Old Testament. He's trying to balance out and teach us the utter destruction of sexual morality. Think David and Solomon, where sexual morality caused them to kill people over adultery, where it caused Solomon to be pulled away from his faith and worship other gods. But not only do we see the rampant destruction from sexual morality throughout the Old Testament, we see the book like Songs of Songs, which is all about the proper expression of sexual intimacy between a man and a woman. You see, Christians aren't prude. Sex is a great thing. In fact, it's a biblical thing. It just needs to be in the proper context of how God intended it and how he created it. From the very beginning of the Bible, we see this found in Genesis 2, chapter 24 through, uh, chapter 2, 24 and 25. He says, that's why a man leaves his father and mother and united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And of course, this teaching wasn't just for them. They didn't have a father or mother. This was for everybody else. But they came together in the unity of marriage and became one flesh. We know it's a bonding of both the physical and the mental, the, the things that happen in a marriage. And we know it's more than just this mental or like a mystical thing. We know it's a physical thing. Because what do they make sure they tell us right afterwards? They were naked and felt no shame. Like this is what it's referring to, the marriage relationships, the sexual relationship. And so the proper context for sex has started off at the very beginning in the marriage relationship. And Paul's gonna discuss this in 1 Corinthians chapter seven. We're gonna get to it in a moment because what we have to understand is um, Paul is not laying down all of his theology in chapter seven. We're going to be in here for a while because he talks about an array of topics. He talks about sex. He talks about divorce. He talks about singleness. And we're just going to camp out here and, and kind of look at some more biblical teaching on it because Paul is giving practical advice to real people in real time who are dealing with some um, tough stuff. And so before we get to chapter seven today, I want us to look at his theology, not the practical aspects of it, but more of his overall theology of what a marriage should 
look like? That's found in Ephesians chapter five, starting in verse 21. Remember this, here's what Paul says. He says, and further, remember he's continuing, we went through Ephesians a couple years ago. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so right at the beginning on the onset of talking about marriage, he sees, we see this mutual submission, which is looking out for the other person's needs. And this was a very new idea in the first century where women did not have much say or any say in the marriage relationship. He calls them to look at it different and look out for each other. And what we have to understand first is, folks, it's not modern culture who started looking out for women. Christians have been doing that for a very long time. They're supposed to have been doing that for a very long time. The Bible's always been pro-women. Verse 22, he says, he says, for wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so your wives should submit to your husbands in everything. Now first, notice, this doesn't say that all women need to submit to all men. This is specifically talking about the marriage relationship, the home, the family-ordained unit that God created to bring life into this community. I mean, the family unit is the bedrock for all good communities and social systems. It's a serious thing. And the truth is, back then, it was very normal for a wife to submit to their husband. And so he's not just repeating something. That's what we have to understand. He's not just repeating common things that they knew, like wife Smith, we already know this. Like that's what they do in our society back then. Paul, why are you writing that? He's not just writing it to get like an amen for men at all. He's speaking against the curse. The backdrop to Paul's understanding, again, is the Old Testament. Remember, after the fall, it says something very unique will happen to um, the wives, that they will want to dominate and control along with birthing pains. Here's what he says. Genesis 3. He says, then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pains of your pregnancy. And all the women said, amen, right? And in your pain, uh, you will give birth. And here's what else he says. This is part of the curse, part of the fall. And you will desire to control your husband. So part of the curse is this desire to want to be to control the situation, but he says, hey, but he will rule over you. So we see this friction in a marriage because of sin. But this isn't God's ideal. This is the reality of the curse and of sin. And so when Paul says submit, when he's saying this, he's saying because of Christ, because we've been made new, because we were in him, we don't have to live in this sinful way any longer where we have someone wanting to control and then the other one being domineering. He's saying, hey, we don't have to live like that any longer. So in, instead of living out the curse, instead of wanting to control and dominate your husband, live a different way. What would that look like? Paul said, be submissive. Instead of trying to be domineering, be submissive. However, even though he's reversing this idea in the sinful nature, he isn't reversing the the headship of the husband in the home. 
And what this means is the husbands are supposed to be the leaders in their home. And those of you men who participated in our men's studies, the ones on Monday nights or the ones we've done on Tuesday mornings, you know what this means. This means you are to take responsibility for the situations and people that God brings in your life. It doesn't mean that you're domineering. It doesn't mean that you're abusive. It means you take responsibility for what God brings in your life. And then he says this, for the husbands... This means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. We're like, yeah, but what does that look like exactly? Paul's like, I'm glad you asked. He gave up his life for her. You mean I gotta love my wife in a way to like give up everything, my entire life for her? He's like, yeah, like that's your standard. Be willing to give up everything for her. To make her holy and clean, this is talking about what Christ did, to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. Husbands aren't supposed to rule in this domineering way. That's been reversed. We're supposed to lead in a loving, Christ-honoring way to look out for the benefit of our spouse. Ephesians 5, 21, this submission, this mutual looking out for the other person's needs. And we as husbands must be willing to give up our rights for them, to love them and care for our spouse. Men are supposed to lead in this way, not the domineering patriarchal way. No, very different. Then we're gonna jump down to verse 31 to look at how they come together. He says this. He says, as the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say each man must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. He says the husband and wife are united in one through this marriage, but this is an illustration of actually Christ in his church where we become one. Remember this in Christ, we become one with Jesus through our salvation and the marriage relationship is an illustration of that marriage between Christ and his people. You see, marriage isn't just something we do because we're lonely. Marriage is a way we put God's love on display for the world to see the reflection of God's union with us, of what he can do and what he is doing. Your marriage and my marriage is ultimately and primarily about the glory of God. It's not about us primarily, and we forget that, don't we? It's not about my happiness, it's not about what I like, it's not about getting everything I want. That's called being a child, isn't it? All right, that's not a marriage. Our marriage is ultimately a reflection of what God is doing in this world. That's why it's such a big deal for Christians. That's why it's such a big deal. And now we've talked about all this before, but it's important to remember this mutual submission mission and this mutual looking out for each other and that the primary purpose is to bring God's glory because Paul is now going to apply this theology to a real practical problem that they are dealing with. Real life marriage situations. If you don't think Bible speaks to real life, I got news for you today, it actually does. You're gonna be like, man, some of you are gonna be like, I love the Bible, I like 1 Corinthians chapter seven, my favorite verses, watch. I guarantee it, you'll love it. Because remember, here's what's going on. 
The, um, this church particularly is filled with sexual morality. You had a lot of hedonists. And what that means, it's a fancy word to say people who seek pleasure for the sake of pleasure. Their philosophy in life is if it feels good, do it. Feels good eating a gallon of ice cream, go for it. Like, let's just live it up. Don't deny ourselves anything. Let's just do everything that feels good. But then you come across the exact opposite, which is asceticism, where people deny pleasure for the sake of pleasure. They're like, you know what? Never mind. Pleasure's bad. We're not going to do anything. In fact, it's more holy if we don't like anything and we don't have any pleasure. It's more God honoring if we're just miserable. Some of you are like, yeah, I've seen those people at church. They come in, they're never smiling, right? They just look miserable. This must be their, their part. Paul's like, no. Okay, we got to deal with that too. So he's answering the question from the ascetists. So he talked about the people who go and do everything. He's like, no. And then the other people are like, hey, well, we'll just cut out pleasure. And Paul's like, no. So here's his response. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 says, now for the matters you wrote about. So they're asking Paul. It took him six chapters of just laying down some law, saying, here's what I've heard about you. And now he's like, now, now we're going to get to the questions you have and you've asked me. Let's get to it. He says, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So that's the question they're asking him. This is what he's quoting back. And evidently, the scholars say this is very hard to translate, uh, translate in a polite way because this isn't a polite thing going on. They're not saying, can we have kids? They're not asking that. What they're saying is, can we have sex because it feels good? Like, should we not do this? They're saying, basically, right, Paul, we're not supposed to have sex for the pleasure part and enjoy it, right? Like sex is just about procreation, but we should like cut out the pleasure aspects of it, right? And then Paul says in verse two, kind of skirts it. He says this, he says, but since sexual morality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. He says, look, let's be honest, sexual immorality is rampant in your lives. These things are happening. Therefore, you need to have sex in the proper context. He directs their attention to their spouses. And the idea behind this is that couples are regularly coming together, regularly coming together and having intimacy and sexual relations that God designed the marriage for. And so seeking pleasure in the proper context of marriage is a right thing to do. The intimacy and love between husband and wife should be a regular occurring thing, not an occasional thing, right? A regular occurring thing. This is okay. Verse three, he says, husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Again, they're being polite. Marital duty, what's it referring to? It's sex. I'm just letting you know. Like there's no ifs, ands, and buts. They're just being polite, trying to make it palatable. He's saying, listen, the husband should fulfill that and the wife should also fulfill that. This is the sexual needs, the sexual responsibility. And so check this out. It's saying that both husbands and wife have a sexual responsibility towards each other, 
to fulfill their spouse's sexual needs. Everybody's like, man, I don't say about that. Yeah, it's been in the Bible the whole time. You didn't know. It's been right here. This is why every couple needs premarital counseling. When you're agreeing to get married, when you're making that covenant, one of the things Christians believe is that you are agreeing to meet your spouse's sexual needs. And Paul is being extremely practical with the backdrop of their culture. He's more than likely preparing them for what's about to occur. And I'm sorry, I don't mean to laugh, but it's just, it's funny because here's, here's the situation. Remember, remember back then in this culture, many of them restricted um, sex with their wife just for procreation. Remember that sermon? And then they would look for everything else to actually fulfill the pleasure, whether it was prostitutes, whether it was other people or Younger people, remember that? We we didn't forget that sermon. I don't know why I'm asking. We all remember that one, yeah. So the spouse was looked at just for procreation. Like, that's all we do there. And so Paul has laid the foundation saying all of that's a sin. You gotta stay away from all of it. So there's a good chance that Paul is preparing them for what's about to happen. You have all these men who have been fulfilling their sexual desires outside of the home. Paul's saying you can't do that anymore. You gotta do that within the home. And so he's preparing the home, the husband and the wife, especially the wife, like look, you're about to get a lot of attention that you haven't been getting. Here's what that looks like. Here's the responsibility on this. And let's just be real for a moment. This is a massive problem in today's world. Many women are not prepared for how men are wired. One medical doctor wrote this. He says, most women don't realize that testosterone creates a a physiological drive in their husbands that demand expression every few days. Without that insistent testosterone, women experience little physical drive for sexual release. Rather, they desire relational closeness that leads to sexual intimacy. And so Paul is saying that if all the husbands need to turn from all that other junk, be prepared for the increased attention you're going to receive. And this is a real problem today, just like it was back then. I cannot tell you how many men I've talked to that do not believe their wives could handle their full-fledged sexual attention. They said they can't. Like they'd want to divorce me, they'd want to leave. There's no way they could handle my sexual needs. They feel constantly rejected. Their spouse puts them down for their sexual drive and makes them feel like there's something wrong with them because of it. And I can tell you as an absolute fact, they use this as a logical reason. I didn't say correct. But in their mind, they logically have rationaled that this is why I look at pornography. My spouse won't meet my needs, so therefore I need my needs met. I'm not gonna get a divorce, so I'll just go look on the internet and take care of it. You're like, Brian, that's horrible. No, I'm just telling you it's true. Like, I'm gonna create all sorts of great conversations for spouses today, I'm just letting you know. Like, this, this is the point. I can't tell you how many men who deal with that, and I'm not saying it's an okay thing. I'm just telling you it's a real life thing. And so Paul says that spouses are to fulfill each other's sexual urges. And I didn't say perversions, 
but sexual urgings. This is part of what it means to be married. And this isn't an easy thing to figure out, especially if you've opened Pandora's box and you have all sorts of different sexual perversions going on and you've exposed yourself to stuff, but you gotta work through that. It's part of what it means to be a Christian and what it means to live for Christ. And for men, this means that we have to give ourselves to our spouse, which means we have a responsibility to meet their needs. And men, if you didn't know, I'm sure you knew, but if you didn't know, they're not the same as yours. They're wired differently. As the medical doctor pointed out, they have a desire for the relational closeness that leads to sexual intimacy. And that's your responsibility to figure that out to work through that, to give her what she needs. If you haven't read the book, Love and Respect can be game-changing for any marriage. It's the best book I've ever read on the subject. I recommend it to everyone. And this only works, this marriage relationship only works if both people are looking out for each other. If they're giving each other a break, trying to be submissive, trying to look out for the interest of the other person rather than beating them up, rather than yelling at them, rather than fussing it. We're coming together trying to work through this. Look what he says in verse four. He says, the wife does not have authority over her own body. We're like, look, we knew Paul hated women. No, let him continue. He says, she doesn't have authority, but she yields it to her husband in the same way. The husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Remember in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Paul has already said that our bodies are not our own. Whose are they? Do you remember? They're God's because we were bought with a price. And so because our bodies are not our own, they're God's, he's already purchased them. He sets the limits for what we do with them. He can declare what is sexual morality and and what is not. And he already has. He said, this is what it looks like. Here's the proper context. But not only that, so not only is your body God's, he says, in that marriage covenant where you are agreeing to come together, your body's not your own. You yield it. You give it away to your spouse. And the idea behind this is the selflessness, not selfishness. Selfishness points to whom? It's about me. Selflessness say it's about the other person. And we look out for their needs. Now remember, Paul doesn't say use this to weaponize scripture. He doesn't say this to use these verses against your spouse. And if that's where you are and that's what you're thinking, I'm just letting you know you have serious issues you need to work through. We don't use the Bible as a weapon to try to beat our spouse up or make them feel bad, but it's something we read with our spouse to work through and talk through and ask them how we can do this together. But this is the self-giving that's talked about in Ephesians chapter five. And friends, this was game-changing back then, just like it should be today. Because wives, it says, are on equal playing field. It's not about the husband just being domineering. It's about the women being respected and listened to. And the men might just find out they're not meeting their spouse's needs. And so there needs to be this open communication between both of them. Look at verse 5. He says this. He says, do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together so Satan will not tempt tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now that word deprive means to take away, to steal or defraud. He says, do not cheat your spouse by withholding sex. 
For us, we think of cheating when somebody goes outside the context of marriage. But Paul is saying you are cheating your spouse when you withhold sex from them. And this, again, this doesn't give anyone ammo to demand anything. He's just saying there are real life practical reasons why this is important. He says the only reason why you withhold it is for mutual consent because you are so wrapped up in prayer that if you were to go down the path of sexual things, it would distract you from um, prayer. So Paul doesn't say, hey, turn the headache into prayer and we're good. No, it's not what he's saying. He's saying you guys should agree and come together and talk about it, which means we should openly be talking to our spouses about sex openly talking to them about our needs. And don't worry, I got talking points for you to go home with, men. I'm gonna ask you to lead the conversation. You're gonna be like, it's gonna be great. So your wives are gonna be ready for it, so you're gonna have great conversations today. Because he says, why? Why do we do this? Why is this important? He says, so Satan will not tempt. He's saying Satan is tempting us in those areas. And when you withhold sex from your spouse, we're opening the door for temptation to overcome them. And so Paul acknowledges at least two things here I just want to touch on. First, sexual temptations are a real thing. We don't need to be naive about this. Your spouse is tempted in the area of sex. We don't have to act like detectives and try to investigate it. We don't have to try to pin it on them and try to make this into something where we want to harm them or make them feel bad. No, we just need to know it's a real life thing. This is what Satan does. And Paul is very clear on what the solution is. He doesn't say, we'll just stop being tempted or you should be, feel horrible for being tempted, what does he say? Don't deprive each other. He says, come together, have sex, so this isn't an issue. And number two, we see the honesty that people struggle in the area of self-control on this thing. Paul is dealing with a culture that was filled with sexual morality. We are dealing with a culture where people are engaged in sexual morality. And once it has a grip, it's not something easy to overcome. You need God's strength and grace in it. And your marriage will probably need God's strength and grace in it. You're going to need a whole lot of that. Because Paul says, look, self-control in this area is not an easy thing. Like it's a real thing. And as we've talked about, sexual morality is a different kind of sin because there's this physical and mental and spiritual aspect going on. And so we see that the Bible doesn't have a low view of sex at all or think it's not that important. It has a very high view of sex and tells us what that needs to look like. You see, sex is like fire. Fire is a wonderful thing when it's restricted to the proper location. It heats our homes, makes our food safe to eat, destroys our garbage, sources of energy, and you can roast marshmallows on it and keep yourself warm when it's freezing outside. However, outside of its proper context, fire destroys property, disfigure and wounds, and causes massive ruin on large scales. And marriage is to sex what a fireplace is to a fire. He's not saying put the fire out. He's saying put it in the proper location. So if you are married, here's your points. Here's your talking points. We have the questions in a minute. But what Paul teaches us is that we need to develop a healthy habit of sex with our spouse. 
It's the most practical sermon you've ever heard, isn't it? Number two, take responsibility in your marriage to fulfill your spouse's sexual needs. Like we, we gotta own that and we gotta take responsibility for that. That's what Paul tells us. Number three, be on guard against sexual temptations because they're real and they're everywhere. Openly, excuse me, talk openly and honestly, honestly about your sexual needs. And that's gonna be very uncomfortable for many of us. So here's the questions for discussion. This is what you get to talk about with your spouse. I'm helping you out. First, what do you think is a realistic and helpful frequency of sex? And man, this is the time for you to be honest and realistic. This is the time for you to be honest about your temptations and struggles. How do you feel? Where do you struggle? You're like, man, I don't want to talk about stuff with my spouse. You need to. You need to be open and honest. You need to talk to them about these things. Talk about how you don't want to struggle, how you don't want to fall in old habits. This is your time to be vulnerable. And remember, men, women aren't men. They don't understand. It's not the same. But if you're vulnerable, if you're honest, if you have honest conversations, it'll go a very long way. Number two, ask this. What can I start doing to help us have a healthier sex life? Maybe you need to start doing the dishes, helping with homework, start cuddling or having a conversation. I don't know. That's for y'all to figure out. Here's the fun one. What can I stop doing to help us have a healthier sex life? I'm just going to let you know playing video games all night with your friends is the first thing you need to stop. Yeah, if you can't figure out why it's not going on and you're playing video games all night, that's the problem. Stop that first, okay? Grown men still doing that. Come on. So look, start having those conversations. And as Christians, what we have to understand is this is something we need to get right. Because Christians aren't prude people. We're just called to purity. A high view of sex, an important thing that must be valued and cherished and kept in the proper context because we believe all people are made in the image of God and they're important and they have value. And so we want to respect them in these ways. And I clearly cannot tell you how this works out for all of us. But what we see is Paul says, look, sex in the marriage relationship is an important thing, something we need to be responsible for, something you need to talk about with your spouse. And all of us need to take that serious and have better conversations. And I gave you the talking points this morning to start today. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your, the practicality and the honesty of your word You've given us your word to guide our lives, even in the most intimate details of our marriages. Heavenly Father, we humbly confess we don't get this right all the time. Forgive us for our sins, and we ask that you use today's sermon to help marriages, help them have healthy conversations for your glory. Father, we know intimacy is important, so we ask you to help us work through and identify those areas that we need to trust you, those areas of life where we need to walk away from things and those areas where we just need to move towards living for your glory and not for our selfish satisfaction. Father, we love you and we thank you. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Will you stand?